Still it never ends. College. Oh, it ends. Neil, you're already burnt out? No. You've only watched 48 games. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, this are, these are rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work at all. They're just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a baller. He's a playmaker. And a shot smaller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. I'm Travis Matlin, editor of 538, and with me in the studio, only one of the fearsome twosome, it's Neil Payne, Neil Statman Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Chad. Neil, I note, well, actually, let's say hi to Kate Fagan, Hot Takedown's senior Southern columnist. Hello, Kate. Hi, Chad. I'm, I'm coming to you from Charleston, where I'm studying all of the Southern heritage that i'm going to be colonizing about hmm was grantland rice from the south he seems like he should have been from the south based on his name just in general yeah see i thought he was from bill simmons imagination but he's like a real guy not a real okay. person uh kate i want you to know that, that neil is sitting in your seat in the studio and I, I wondered if you had any strong opinions um about about his usurping your throne I feel good about it if he's doing it in honor of me. Yeah, it's a I tribute. Feel... It's a tribute. Okay. I'm wearing the Mets a... hat. Okay. No if Toronto tribute... stuff in here. There you go. Okay, then I feel good if it was just like a form of laziness because his seat is farther than mine. I was going to feel negative about it. But I feel good. I, I can't say laziness played no part, but we'll go with the tribute. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. On today's show, uh, we'll give a little uh, bracket update both in what's happening out there in the men's and women's tournaments, and then also, of course, what's happening with the hot takedown The only bracket, bracket. that really matters. Exactly. Uh, then we will talk about uh, the U.S. women's national hockey team and their attempts to get paid equitably uh, for, their, for their play. And then, finally, we will discuss baseball. Because, guys, baseball is back. Spring training is happening. Tim Tebow continues to get hits for the New York Mets in spring training, but most importantly, actual real live baseball games are coming back. We will preview the NL next week. I think we'll preview the AL, and then baseball will have arrived. Tebow free Major League Baseball for now. For now. For now. For now. All right, uh, let's uh, let's get right to the show. It was a boring first day of the tournament, if I may say so. A relatively boring first round of the tournament, and then everything got very tight. And very exciting in the second round, even if there weren't a ton of upsets. The East region is a total mess. And I guess let's start there, folks. Uh, Duke, Villanova, gone. Neil, you watched both. You've watched all the games. Every single one. Your duty. Literally. For 538. Uh, (laughs) What did you see about, especially Villanova and Duke's losses? Was this uh, a team playing better than than Villanova and Duke? Was this um, South Carolina and, and Wisconsin sort of uh, uh, getting lucky on on some bad days for the two favorite teams? Well, so I think for Villanova, it was a case of just... uh, We talked about this uh, before the tournament about how, even though they were the number one overall seed, that they got stuck in a really difficult situation. And I thought that that was going to manifest itself more 
down the bracket, but even getting a team like Wisconsin in the second round was pretty tough uh, as far as draws go for a number one seed. And so I think in that case, it was a case of a team that was a pretty good team just you know beating one of the best teams in the country. That happens sometimes, and sometimes it happens in March Madness. Uh, I think Wisconsin shot really well inside the arc, and, and that was something that Villanova had a lot of trouble defending. Uh, and Villanova also was ice cold. But in general, you could see a team like Wisconsin knocking off a team like Villanova, at least, you know, with, with some frequency. The South Carolina over Duke upset was a little bit harder to see coming. Uh, and that was a case where I wrote about this uh, in the wake of that upset was that South Carolina just did a lot of the things that Duke had trouble with or were correlated with Duke losing throughout the season. This was a flawed Duke team uh, and really up until the ACC tournament and that run that they went on, I think this was a team that a lot of people wouldn't have expected them to, to go very far in the tournament. And they had trouble, you know, with putting pressure on guard. They didn't force a lot of turnovers. Uh, they had trouble with rebounding. And those were a couple of cases where uh, South Carolina really exploited Duke's weaknesses. And then down the stretch, can we talk for a second about how great South Carolina executed on offense? Uh, I forget who wrote about this, but there was a great piece um, uh, also in the wake of, of Duke losing about how, you know, you saw a lot of near misses for some of the top teams that even moved on. Kentucky had some trouble uh, and, and so on and so forth. And the difference there was that uh, down the stretch of those games, the team that was the upstart team, the, the would-be upsetter, really kind of struggled to score down down the stretch. In South Carolina's case, they actually kind of ramped up their efficiency and just kept getting the line and kept making shots. And it, it was ultimately too much for Duke to withstand. What was surprising to me about the tournament was that like, I went in believing that Duke was the favorite I actually had them in the final game and then when I when I watched them lose the other night I started to think about how when a team's game is predicated on this idea that they have two sides to it and we are buying into the notion that they have to for like a long stretch being you know six seven consecutive games play at the one side of their personality like that seems to me a recipe to not play well in March, like, I don't know how we, I don't know how we like distinguish whether it's true or not. But like Villanova last year seemed like it was a much steadier team. It seemed to me that going into this tournament, the idea that on the heels of an ACC tournament, Duke would then as well continue to perform on that level in the NCAA tournament when they had had very high highs and very low lows during the season was probably not a recipe to play well in the tournament. Yeah, and that's a great point. Like so much uh, when people are filling out their brackets is made of trying to figure out like who the hot team is and, and should we ride the hot hand during the conference tournament or whatever. But I think that might be looking at it backwards because in order to be sort of demonstrably hotter at the end of the season uh, than presumably you were during your, you know, kind of mid-season form, that means that you also had to be worse for most of the season kind of leading up to the conference tournament or leading up to the home stretch of the season. And so uh, maybe by looking for that, like, hot team, and Duke was 
undoubtedly one of the hottest teams in the country going into the tournament, you're actually kind of finding a team that does have that high ceiling but also that low floor, whereas maybe going with a team that had consistently shown themselves to be sort of at the same level, you're not getting that hot team, but you're also getting a team that has proven during the whole season, not just during small samples within the season, that they're capable of playing at a high level. And I'm also kind of fed up with Duke and Villanova as an NCAA title pick in my brackets because I feel like I'm constantly trying to decide on what peak or valley of the roller coaster those programs will be because I'm not saying it's either more or less than any other blue blood program, but with Villanova, there have been so many lows, one high, well, two highs, if you go all the way back to the eighties, but, and the same thing with Duke, like, I feel like we either get a Duke program that's, you know, winning an NCAA title with a lot of talent or has a lot of talent and is bowing out early. And there's this constant, playing against those two variables in my mind about who I'm supposed to pick, which version of them is going to show up in the tournament. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we know that it's most likely that a blue chip team is going to win the NCAA tournament. And so you know that you shouldn't be thinking that Wichita State or or Gonzaga or I guess maybe St. Mary's is going to win or something like that. However, I think we end up as as a sort of bracket filling culture distilling down the blue chips who can actually win to basically, let's say, eight teams or something like that. And so Duke is always going to be one of those eight teams whenever they have a halfway decent squad. But that doesn't – just because they're blue chip and one of the blue chips who have won in the past doesn't mean that they're going to – that they have any further edge than than a team like Gonzaga does, for example. So I want to talk about what's still to come in in the tournament – and things are, are a little a little wackier than they were when things started in the sense that the East region, Florida, is now the one who is favored to make it out of that region with a 34% chance to advance to uh, to the Final Four. That is still not the likeliest scenario. It's not the majority of the time it's going to happen. But um, they are the team of those four remaining. That's highest. That's a 28-point bump even since... Uh, the end of round one. So just the the, the one, uh, there's a few games of round two uh, was, was a huge boost to Florida. Now they don't have to face Villanova and they get, they get uh, Wisconsin instead. And then um, something else interesting has happened is Gonzaga is now the number one likeliest team to win. And, you know, based on what you guys have seen, is there anything to make you think that there's no, that there is any reason that Gonzaga can't follow through on that? Any more than you know any other number one seed who's who's going for it. Well, uh, just to kind of put in uh, a word for the team that I picked to win it all in our hot takedown bracket, West Virginia. Um, I, I did that. Wait, uh, what? Wow. Yeah, we talked about this. Uh, so I did that in a lot of ways just because I felt like they were undervalued and trying to kind of uh, pick a team that maybe not everyone else was picking, but still one that had a chance. But I also think that West Virginia is a team, you know, if you watched uh, any of their games over the weekend, especially against Notre Dame, when they are on, they really seem to overwhelm opposing teams, and they do it with a style that I don't think uh, a lot of teams are prepared for uh, and, and kind of have had a lot of experience trying to break that press and and kind of combat against their ability to turn turnovers into points and really rack up runs on you in a really short amount of time. And so if I think that there's any team that sort of has the the ammunition and the play style to upset a team like a Gonzaga or, you know, one of the higher rated teams, it would be West Virginia. Uh, but then, you know, 
if West Virginia were to beat Gonzaga, then they would be playing maybe against teams that that kind of underdog playing style would be less conducive to uh, to beating. So I think that's always something interesting about the NCAA tournament where certain playing styles are better when you're an underdog than when you're a favorite. And, and certain teams like a Wichita State is another good example if they had been able to kind of outlast Kentucky in that game and move on further. Games in which you are suddenly favored with that playing style, maybe it becomes less, uh, less advantageous to you. Yeah, and when it comes to Gonzaga, um, it's hard for me, and I don't know if this is just like part of the human um, mindset where when you haven't seen something, it's it feels very hard for you to predict it or feel like it could happen. But with Gonzaga, like the fact that they haven't played the kind of competition that we usually see play, the very fact that yes, we see so many upsets and we see un- in- unpredictability in the NCAA tournament, but we don't see usually is a team that really is an actual mid-major in terms of conference actually win the NCAA tournament. So when I hear it like, Chad, when you're like, they're the highest percentage chance to win the NCAA tournament, that to me rings false. But to me, that's simply because I've never seen a Gonzaga win the NCAA tournament. And not just Gonzaga specifically, but like a Gonzaga any sort of team that comes from that pedigree or lack of pedigree win the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and I think that's the reason why if you kind of compare something like Vegas uh, and the odds to win the tournament to our 538 model, you'll find that Gonzaga is only fourth best behind Kansas, UNC, and Arizona. So I think there is you're not the only one that feels skeptical about a team like Gonzaga. But Kate, aren't you falling into, falling into the same trap that you had with Duke, just the inverse of it, which is, you know, there not that you fall, fell into with Duke, but you're bemoaning that people fall into with Duke, which is that people pick Duke because Duke wins and and teams that win win NCAA championships. Here you're saying Gonzaga isn't uh, a good chance to win because Gonzaga hasn't won and and therefore it's not going to win an NCAA championship. I guess I technically am, except the only way that I think about it is that if I pick Duke and I pick Duke versus UCLA in the final, so obviously that's I'm still half alive on that front, but. I at least am picking two teams that I have seen win championships at some percentage of level. So, yes, Duke craps out of the tournament to a frequent frequent occurrence, but they also have won the tournament. And whereas with Gonzaga, even though I know they have a good team, I know that they're beating the teams that are on their schedule and that's all they're capable of, I'm still, if I was picking them to win, picking a team to win that has never won an NCAA championship. So Duke still feels like the safer bet to me. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, maybe some of it also goes back to the playing style question that we were just talking about, where is there a reason to think, aside from the fact that Gonzaga didn't play a necessarily very strong schedule and comes from the West Coast Conference uh, and hasn't won a championship or gone to the Final Four before, is there something gimmicky about the way that they play that would lead us to think that it's all kind of smoke and mirrors? And I think in the case of Gonzaga, that's not really true. Nothing really stands out about them as, you know, kind of oh, well, they only win because they do this weird thing. In some ways, that would be an argument against the, the West Virginia team that I picked. So uh, so real quick, and, and then we can move on to UConn. Um, the other two regions that we have not talked about, uh, the Midwest, Kansas is favored to make the Final Four still. The only team that is has more than a 50% chance of getting to the Final Four is Kansas, 53% um, uh, likely. And then in the South... Kentucky has separated itself from North Carolina based on the margins of games and, and things like that, and is now at uh, 40% chance to make it North Carolina at 34, Kentucky being the only uh, 
number two seed in region with a number one to uh, to be more likely than number one. I suppose there are only two number two seeds left, though. That's kind of incredible, too, if you think about it, because Kentucky has to go through UCLA just to get to yeah. that hypothetical UNC matchup, whereas UNC only has Kentucky, to go through Butler. And Kentucky's favored 68-32 in that match. All right, so let's talk about UConn very quickly. Uh, the UConn women's team uh, has won its first two games of the tournament, has done it in traditionally dominating fashion. Uh, however, they have dropped in their percentage likelihood to win the tournament, they are uh, they are I think now down to forty eight percent after a couple of rounds. They were fifty two pre tournament. Part of the pro- part of the reason is that Baylor has looked like absolute world beaters. Baylor crushed Texas Southern one hundred and nineteen to thirty in one of their matches. Eighty nine point margin, Kate. If some team beat you by 89 points, I mean, what do you do with that? I don't know. I, I mean, I guess what, what it made me think of was, like, I don't understand what value can be extracted from that type of game. And, and I only point that out because, it, as we mentioned, like we talked last week a lot about the 52% chance for UConn to win the NCAA tournament and how wrong that felt in my gut. So, obviously, it feels even more wrong that now you're saying there's, like, a 48 49% chance that the, they win the NCAA tournament and the evidence or the reasoning for that being that Baylor, they're perhaps the, the primary team that we think can beat them according to the stats, beat Texas Southern by a lot of points. To me, it's like once you get to 30, there's no difference between 30 and 80. Like it's just, to me, there's nothing, there's no valuable insight between 30 and 80. So the 48% UConn winning the tournament to me, seems even more ridiculous than the 52% felt. Yeah, that rings true for me also. Uh, You know, there's a reason why there's a lot of margin of victory caps in whatever various computer rating systems for college sports is because it is so easy for teams of very different talent levels to basically call whatever margin they want, right? Like, Like you said, it doesn't matter whether you win by 30 or by 90. You can pretty much set if you're Baylor in that game the margin at whatever you want it to be, depending on how much you play your starters and how much, you know, you kind of instruct your team to to go all out. And so I don't know that there's that much value added from that. And I think that uh, a good computer rating system, for instance, would kind of give a diminishing marginal return to each additional point that you win by over and above a certain amount. And so it wouldn't really matter whether you won by 89, as impressive as that sounds on paper to win by. I like that this podcast has become doubt central for 538's <laughs> win probability models for March Whoa. Madness. No, not in a bad way. I, I no, think no. That this is what it's made to do. You it's know, model what, talk, Chad. Yeah. No, model this, talk. And also, like our discussion of the women's tournament is why the model doesn't rate UConn better. I think it's actually a good place to be. Right. Yeah. Okay, before we keep going, I want to give a small update to our hot takedown ESPN tournament bracket challenge. Let's start with us since... None of us are doing that well. Uh, so what else is new? <laughs> within the hot takedown bracket, the leader of the three of us is our producer, <laughs> Katie Ferguson. She is 22nd in the men's bracket, I should say, uh, in the 93rd percentile overall. Then there's a, there's a small quirk um, in that both Kate and I didn't manage to get – Submitted to the hot takedown bracket. It doesn't seem we feel that bracket. 
I have a bracket. I just didn't. I, just, I didn't. We file didn't it click the right things. Down. I filed it. It didn't stick. I'm very sorry, what? listeners. This you is can't like you take have the no pleasure. Bracket. I yeah, do have, have a bracket, bracket in the men's. In the women's, I don't, which I'll explain. You can all give me a lot of uh, 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 crap for. But um, do want to com- congratulate Lopez Castillo one. His bracket is the 99.9th percentile overall at ESPN. Lopez Castillo won, tied for first with Ibert Schaus, whose hashtag winning bracket is also tied. I'm, I'm suspicious about this almanac. It, it makes me think of Back to the Future <laughs> and Biff uh, using the almanac from uh, the future. Uh, Neil, you are uh, 124th. Tony Chow, who helps us in the studio. 287th. Very, very, very sad. I bet I know who Tony has as the champion. We should note, I'm no better than Tony. I've I've gotten the same. I'm in the same percentile. It's it's bleak. Um, All right. In the women's bracket, uh, Neil, you are 7th. Congratulations. 93.1%. I usually do better on the women's side than the men's. Uh, Ruek 2020. Excuse me. The man, 86. Mason RN and G Tans leading. Thank you all for listening and playing. All right. More updates to come once Kate and I figure out how to get in the brackets that we're supposed to be in. Before we keep going with this week's show, let's get a word from one of our sponsors. Hot Takedown This Week is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place is not enough to find quality candidates. So if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. You can with ZipRecruiter.com, where you post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. All you have to do is post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No more juggling emails or calls to your office. You quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Hot Takedown listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. It's one more time. ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown to try it for free and find qualified candidates today. The U.S. women's hockey national team is refusing to play in the upcoming women's ice hockey world championships. Those world championships happen at the end of this month. They're refusing to play because they say they are not being paid fairly, that uh, they are essentially only played for six months out of a four-year span, and, the, and those six months are in the year before uh, before an Olympics, and so obviously in 2018 there will be an Olympics. And for those six, month, six months, uh, the players claim they are paid 6000 Dollars each in a sport in which there's not a lot of uh, revenue sources possible outside of women's national hockey. And so we talked on the show quite a bit about um, about equity in, in, in pay in sports. Uh, we've noted that tennis is one of the few sports and major tournaments that, that does provide uh, equal pay between the two tournaments, the two brackets, rather. Um, and we th- spoke about the U.S. women's soccer, national soccer team, um, attempts to to get a better contract that would allow them to be paid more fairly, especially because their matches are so are so widely attended. Um, and so, Kate, I, l- let me pitch it to you. Do you want to give just a, a deeper uh, summary of, of what's happening in, in this case and, and how it's similar and also different from the soccer cases, the case that we spoke about in the past. Yeah, and I think the key way that it's different is that the U.S. women's 
national hockey team is seeking equitable pay, not equal pay. And so the U.S. women's soccer team was seeking to be paid commensurate with the U.S. men's national team. This U.S. women's hockey team is not seeking equal pay. They're seeking equitable pay, what they think is the amount of support that they need from USA hockey separate of the U.S. Olympic Committee that they would need to be able to maintain pursuit of like a high standard of, of athletic achievement. And so they've got at the end of the month, they've got the world championships coming up. And they are threatening to not play, even though they're being played domestically in these world championships, because they've now got a team that's all unified around this pursuit. They've actually even reached out to like perhaps the next 50 to 60 best women's hockey players in the country, making sure that those players will not suit up for USA hockey if USA hockey tries to put together a second team or like a scab team to play in these world championships. And so I think it's important because I think sometimes there can be a discussion of payment of athletes on this level that's out of touch with reality. And so it can be hard to care about because you're like, well, whatever, they're getting paid, you know, a couple, you know, half a million dollars or a million dollars. Or, you know, when we talk about NBA lockouts, it's just an amount of money that you can't even process for this USA women's hockey team. It's amount of money that you can process. Like they get, they were getting paid. I think Chad, as you mentioned, a thousand dollars a month for six months from USA Hockey, um, and this includes like sharpening your skates and and uh, um, dining and a lot of like expensive things that athletes need to maintain. And so we spoke with Hillary Knight this weekend about all of the dynamics surrounding this boycott and where it might lead to, because it's specifically with USA hockey and not with the U S Olympic committee, because the U S Olympic committee has a level of funding that is actually maintainable for these women. Whereas USA hockey is so small and the level of investment in marketing dollars. Um, Hillary was saying that like when they went and played in a city, a lot of times there was no marketing done. And so even when they were out to dinner the night before and they mentioned to the waiter or whatever that they were in town playing USA women's hockey game, there was no concept that this was happening within those communities. And so you can see the perpetual nature of underfunding and under marketing women's sports carrying out. And there are these key moments within women's sports. I know I'm getting long winded here, but there are these key moments within women's sports where you do have um, an item on the calendar, like the world championships and the upcoming 2018 winter Olympics. And you have a group of, athletes willing to stand up for something where you truly can make change. And these women are and talking to Hillary Knight, like they're simply asking for like, you know, maybe 50 to $60,000, some level of money that allows them to like fuel their bodies in a healthy way and equip their bodies in a way that allows them to compete and pursue gold medals. Like it, it really seems to have nothing to do with like putting true money in their pockets. Right, and and it should be pointed out, and to a certain extent this shouldn't matter, but that the USA women's hockey team is actually the best women's hockey team in the entire world, according to the uh, International Ice Hockey Federation rankings. So it's not like, you know, this is some kind of 
you know, a, a team that isn't really competing. This is literally the best women's hockey team on the planet. And they, you know, have, have to go and buy their own sticks from places and, and don't get pads, you know, updated, uh, that, that are top of the line equipment. Uh, and, and Team USA doesn't even mention the gold medals that they, w- that they had won in the past when they're talking about the history of U.S. Olympic hockey. Uh, they, they don't include the women because they're considered an afterthought. So, it's just like mind blowing that you would have the best hockey team in the world be disrespected to this extent. Yeah, and and Neil, what's what's hard to um, from a from a numbers standpoint, what's hard to understand is how the women's team should be or can be funded on their side because the men's USA program does get a ton of funding from the NHL because the NHL has. Uh, a vested interest in USA hockey at the grassroots level, at the youth level, being able to produce the next generation of talent. And so the NHL contributes a lot of the funding to the grassroots development and also the national team funding for USA hockey. And so there's no comparable situation on the women's side to say, well, okay, well, let's have, you know, the women's pro league fund the women's game. Um, But then you get yourself caught, as I know we've talked about on this podcast a lot is if there's no professional league willing to fund to market the game or to fund the grassroots youth level, then you're, you're caught in this vicious cycle where you're not going to have, you know, the marketing. So people won't show up to the game. So USA hockey will think that there's no need to have an investment. Um, And so I think for these women now, the ability to articulate like what they're fighting for and the dollars that they're fighting for and the amount of interest they do actually garner during an Olympic year and during a world championship is like, it's a catalyst moment that for them, I think will help set like a new layer of foundation going forward about what the invest- investment level is from USA hockey. Yeah. And I think we should mention that the, the USA hockey disputes the, the numbers that, uh, that the players are putting out there. We don't, I don't think we need to get into the, into the specifics, but they don't agree with the, with the narrative that the, that the players are putting out there. However, they are working on, a, on negotiations and trying to hash out exactly how this will go. Kate, in your discussions, over the weekend uh, uh, with a representative for the, for the players, did you get a, a sense for um, for how likely it is that the women's team is actually going to skate at the world championship? Well, when we asked Hillary Knight that, who's probably perhaps the most visible women's hockey player, um, she said that really that was – she was like, that's a question you have to ask USA Hockey because there does seem to be some dispute about the numbers and – from my understanding, and again, this is coming from like the Hillary Knight, you know, the female hockey player side of things, is that USA Hockey is conflating the amount of funding that they're offering these women with the amount of funding that's being offered overall with the percentages and the numbers from the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, because Hillary Knight was saying, you know, if they're coming back with saying, look, you know, the women make 70 to 80 grand, which is a decent amount of money and, 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 most people would say like that's a livable wage. They were saying that like 90 something percent of that is actually coming from the U S Olympic committee. And when it's a non-Olympic year, it's really, really hard to make ends meet. But for your specific question, um, they seem, I would, and I'm just throwing my own number on it. It really seemed 50, 50 to me. I think they're, they're committed to not playing in these world championships. 
and it seems to me they're committed to not playing to them in the in the world championships because the Olympics is really where every year they have a chance to boost their sport to the point where maybe it can hit that tipping point like we saw women's soccer hit and they're willing to give up these world championships to make sure that they get the funding they need to win the gold medal at, in 2018 and beat Canada which is like their arch rival um, and basically you know, like the, their nemesis in terms of uh, international play. It's funny we talk all the time on the show about you know whether rings are the ultimate uh, ultimate pursuit for for an athlete or, or for a team, and in women's sports in particular, it's it's a sobering reminder that that rings are are they have to be secondary to having the money to be able to play the sport in the first place. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. a luxury. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, so we'll keep our, our eyes uh, peeled on, on on this story and, and uh, provide an update next week if there is one. Since the tournament's just in, I think it was supposed to start on, on March thirtieth, uh, March thirty first, excuse me. So um, it should be something will break one way or another probably uh, by the time we, by the time we tape next. Before we keep going with this week's show, I want to talk to you one more time about Tripod, which is a little network effect promotion we're doing this month with a whole lot of other podcasts out there, probably some that you listen to. It's called Tripod because it's about asking your friends to try podcasting if they haven't already. That does not mean that they need to start their own podcast, but rather try listening to podcasts, whether it be for the first time or podcasts that they aren't listening to yet. Do you have a family member who's always hearing you listen to the 538 Politics Pod and wondering, what is, why is my son or my wife or, you know, my cousin always have their earphones in what is it about nate silver's voice that attracts them so put the earphones in their ears tell them it's tripod month it's time you tried pods tripod month is almost over it only runs through the end of march so find your loved ones soon because you know after march you can't tell anyone to try podcasts it's a limited time offer all right let's talk about baseball my favorite thing to talk about baseball March Madness is my favorite time of year that's that Baseball excitement, Kate. To talk about. Uh, let's start with the NL. Let's start with the Cubs. Those gosh darn Cubbies. <sighs> the projection systems uh, that sort of track future performance based on how good players are supposed to be and therefore how good the team is supposed to be. Say the Cubs should win on average. This is an aggregation of four uh, different projection systems. 538 is not included. That the Cubs should win on average 95 games this season, lower than, than last season. Run away with the NL, NL Central. Neil, will they also run away with the National League? Um. Well, so I think they are, right now, according to those projections, kind of like co-favorites, uh, which sounds kind of weird. But the Dodgers also uh, have, I think under a lot of people's radar, have assembled also one of the most talented teams. I think you have to give the Cubs the slight edge. And if you look at something like Fangraphs, they give them a uh, a 26% chance against the Cubs, 30% chance. And those two teams are way out ahead of everyone else. Uh, the Nationals would be third in Fangraphs odds with a 19% chance. And, and the Nationals are an interesting team uh, because I think the collection of metrics that you just mentioned, Chad, have them only like a little bit ahead of the Mets, whereas the the Cubs are huge favorites in their division, and uh, it seems like the Dodgers have a little bit of a cushion between them and the Giants in the NL West. So it seems like of the top, kind of 
holy trinity at the top of the NL this year. The Nationals might be in for the the biggest division race, but uh, then again, last year we thought that those two teams would be kind of uh, you know relatively equal, and then the Nationals just ended up running away with it for most of the season. Well, let's can we focus on the Mets for a second? Sure. <laughs> I thought we <laughs> finally never asked. I know, honestly, I'm like finally maybe we could just take a couple minutes and carve out some time for the Mets. Um, where where are we slash they? Uh, where are the Mets in terms of are their percentage chance of winning the NL this year versus last year? Because last year coming in, we're like you know badass World Series, not champions, but badass World Seriesers. Like, so are we better off this year than we were last year? No. I, so I think uh, as a result of the Nationals having the better year last year, uh, I think that uh, the projections. But we made improvements, Neil. We made improvements. Did, did they, the Mets, did though? They? I feel like we re- the Mets actually took a weird kind of perverse pleasure in returning exactly the same team uh, from last year as this year with give or take, you the know, Met, Bartolo Colon The Mets and leaving. perverse pleasure just go together. That is true. That's yeah. a true statement. Uh, the Mets, uh, and then we should, we should talk about the other teams. The Mets, the Mets um, are, are projected to, to win on average 87 games according to those same aggregated uh, uh, projection systems. And so um, 87 wins is quite different than 95. You could see them winning over yeah. 90 for sure. You could see them winning 82 or below probably, especially depending on injuries. Um, you know, the trick with any of these baseball projections, and especially with the Mets, is that injury is just an impossible thing to divine on the front end of this. And so – Neil, a question for you is, is an injury to a pitcher more devastating for a team than an injury to a a, a comparable position player? Which is, let's say, a month's worth of a starting pitcher. So what would that be? 36 starts, let's say. Is six starts of a really good five-war, six-war starting pitcher as devastating or equally devastating or or less devastating than – uh, 26 missed games from a position player of, of equal value. Well, I don't know. I mean, if wins above replacement is calibrated right, and maybe we could have that argument uh, in a different podcast, but I, I think, you know, it's supposed to be set so that those two things are exactly as damaging to each other. Now, you know, in each team's circumstance, I think it does kind of change things. For instance, the Mets, I mean, maybe the Mets, if they lose one of those starters, it actually doesn't hurt them as much as if, you know, uh, one of the one of the best hitters goes down just because they have such depth at pitcher. Whereas, you know, losing Cespedes, for instance, for an amount of time would be devastating to their offense. So uh, it does depend on the circumstance. But I think as a general rule, the valuation metrics that we kind of have in in sabermetrics these days are supposed to kind of set everything equal uh, because they're all measuring relative to sort of that like next man up, you know, the, 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 theoretical replacement that would be able to slot in in the event of an injury okay so so that being said the Mets I you know I personally as a Mets fan very concerned about the starting pitching when are you not concerned Uh, you know I should start a podcast for that yeah call it panic city yeah it should be it's like panic Uh, panic city listeners very small aside the podcast is coming back once Neil and I find a half hour to do it very soon so let's let's talk about uh, a bit a bit deeper about um about some of the surprise teams that could emerge. It seems like the, the Pittsburgh Pirates in particular are coming off of a down year, both for Andrew McCutcheon and the team as a whole. Um, Neil, you know, it's a little hard to tell with these projection systems, but 
is there is there a team, be it the Pirates or otherwise, that that looks like they're at least on the up and up and you know could break through? Yeah. So the Pirates, I think, uh, right now the projections have them being ahead of the Cardinals, which uh, was not the case last year uh, for sure, because like you said, the Pirates had the down year and the Cardinals are a strange team to figure out. They won uh, 100 games a couple of years ago. They won 86 last year. And so uh, right now the projections see them dipping even down toward maybe about 581, 82 wins. Personally, if you're asking me uh, if I would take the over on that, I would definitely take the over on the Cardinals. And uh, I probably would rank them ahead of Pittsburgh if I were subjectively doing it. But, of course, you asked for a surprise team. Cardinals are not really surprising anyone at this point. Uh, and, you know, the other teams that could sort of jump up into that conversation, like, for instance, the Miami Marlins last year were a team that uh, hung around the wild card slash, you know, kind of playoff race uh, further than anybody thought thought that they would but then Jose Fernandez died at the end of the season and that's just a crushing blow to that team uh, and, and so it seems like their trajectory upward has been kind of permanently altered Colorado is a team in the West that uh, has gotten a lot of buzz but it's another team where we should just do a whole segment on uh, the Rockies and Coors Field and how just bizarre the, the they've tried every different possible way to win. They've tried to go with pure hitting. They've tried to improve their pitching. They've tried to go with ground ball pitchers. They've tried to go, you know, with just all these different things. And uh, there's some research out there that I think is really interesting about uh, the possibility that it's not really the home hitting for the Rockies, even as much as we kind of single out, oh, Todd Helton had this, that, and the other batting average because he hit at Coors. But actually, their hitters are at a disadvantage when they're on the road because the adjustment from the altitude to the, the road parks that they're playing at causes them to hit worse than you would expect given their uh, statistics otherwise, either their stats coming into Colorado if they played elsewhere beforehand or their park adjusted stats uh you know if you kind of take out that course of field effect at Colorado so I will believe that they're a team to kind of be reckoned with when I see it and the other thing that's going on in baseball uh I think is that it's it's it was starting to be this way last year and I think it's going to be even more so this year is that it's just really stratified between the teams that are trying to win and are the contenders and the teams that are not necessarily at that point in their success cycle and so you know you see teams like the Atlanta Braves and the Phillies who are you know, kind of building towards something, but they're still, you know, too many years out. You've got Milwaukee also, I think, is in that group. Cincinnati is a team that is sort of just bottoming out, and so they're years away. The Padres the same way. Uh, and and then you also have those teams at the top like we talked about, and there really aren't that many teams, uh, especially if St. Louis and Pittsburgh kind of break one way or the other on, the, on either side of that 500 kind of ridge. Uh, there aren't that many teams in the middle, and I think teams are kind of planning their uh, their peaks and valleys according to sort of a long-term plan. And maybe they looked at a team like the Cubs, who really went into, when Theo Epstein took over, this very concerted long-term plan of, we're going to get bad for a little while, uh, and then we're going to use that as a springboard. And it really was, along with the Houston Astros, really some of the first examples of baseball teams doing what NBA teams have done for a while, which is to tank and, and kind of gather up and gobble up those draft picks and then make this like long-term build so, uh, in the future. Yeah, it is, it is interesting in that it does feel... 
at least before the seasons begin now, like you have a, a good sense of what's to come. And I don't feel like that was the case since the Yankees were, were doing their, their dominant thing um, where, yeah, sure, you knew the Phillies were going to be good when they had Doc Holliday and, and whatever else. But it didn't feel like – I mean, there, there really are, what, eight teams in the NL that are going to compete at least before the season begins. And that's that. you know, And you just close it there and, and five of them will make the playoffs and then – it's probably the same thing's gonna happen next year. All right, let's uh let's leave it there. Next week the AL. Neil, you wanna give a sneak preview? Who you got? Uh so Boston good, Cleveland good, uh the Oakland A's not so good. Look at that. See? Don't even listen to next week's show. <laughs> Who needs it? Spoiler alert. All right, let's uh move on to our significant digit. When a telling number from the world of sports is parachuted down, majestically drifting. Until it lands in one of our laps. Today, that lap is my lap, listeners. Our significant digit this week is 77.7%. That is something called the charge rate of Anthony Tolliver on Sacramento Kings. Our 538 colleague, Chris Herring, looked around at the stats in the league, and he realized there was a stat missing. Somehow, in the age of analytics, there was still a stat that had not been created yet. And he calls it the charge rate. It's a very simple stat. All it is is or it's born from um, a realization, which is that we talk about how many pl- charges a player gets, but we don't talk about how effective they are at getting a charge, of course, because if you don't get a charge and you're whistled for a block instead, that's a pretty costly foul for, for your team, especially relative to gaining possession on, on the charge call. And so Chris looked at all of the players in the NBA this season and the number of Charges they drew, the number of blocks they they drew out of those together essentially created collisions and looked at the, the charge rate, so the success rate of those collisions. And a guy named Anthony Tolliver for the Sacramento Kings has a 77.7% charge rate, 42 of 54 successful charges. You guys, far higher. You guys, yeah, this is so exciting because I won the Take Charge Award at Colorado every single year <laughs> that I played at Colorado. And there were no statistics, statistics, so I can totally make this up. But in my mind, I almost never got called for a block because it was a processing of spatial relationships, which was what my one athletic quality. I didn't have like speed, lateral, vertical, any of that. I had great spatial skills. And it was a processing of spatial skills versus like how, I, how far away I knew someone was, whether I was going to get a block or not, and being able to just sacrifice my body. So I'm in this company with Anthony Tolliver. Kate, I love that this podcast has just become like a way for you to burnish your Colorado legacy yes. after the fact. You're free yes. throw shooting, you're yes. charge taking. But again, always Ted. emeritus uh, to happening to someone else. <laughs> I was just talking to someone today about, and they were like, well, how you know, you played college basketball, were you any good? And I was like, I was decent. And they were like, If something's happened over 10 years ago, you can talk about it and not feel bad about it. So I'm not even going to feel bad about it. Oh, I like that. Yes. Right. The humble brag has a statute of limitations. So I'm speaking about this in a way to contribute to the discussion (laughs) that, like, I do think Anthony Tolliver, like, there are, I think there are people who stumble into taking charges or getting blocks. And then there are people who strategically use it. And obviously, Anthony Tolliver should be knighted as one of those people that, you know, part of the latter group. Yeah. So you should read this, this story that Chris wrote because Tolliver goes into depth about how he takes the charges, how he sells the refs, that they're charges and not flops and not blocks. It's, he's really When he was about, co- about his college career and how he was coached on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a really it. fun piece. Uh, so listeners, we'll put a we'll put a link to it in uh, on our show page. But it seems like the real 
significant digit today is 10 years, which is the statute of limitations on Kate's humble brags <laughs> around her college career, which, which I like. Or just anybody being able to humble brag about anything. People go forth with that 10-year right. benchmark. It's a service for listeners, this 10-year benchmark. So, so 10 years from now, I can brag about how much I dominated everyone in the office at foosball <laughs> the other day? Yes, yes. And all of us at the women's bracket, which none of us figured out how to, how to participate in. Uh, all right, that'll, that'll do it for this week's show. Neil, thanks for talking about sports. Thanks, Chad. Kate, thanks for talking about sports all the way from South Carolina. Yes, thank you, guys. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Our recipient of Hot Takedowns Take Charge Award is Jody Avergan. Production assistance from Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada today. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We would love to hear what you think. Find us on your favorite podcasting app and, of course, iTunes as well. iTunes.com slash 538 will take you to our show while you're there review and or rate the show it helps others discover the program our theme song is by mystery mansion i'm chadwick matlin talk to you next time